0: Well good morning to you again, it's uh, good to be back and uh, opening the scriptures uh, together and um, this morning we're going to be looking at an account of the resurrection from John's perspective so we'll turn to the Gospel of John chapter 20, the Gospel of John chapter 20 And we'll commence reading verse 1 and we'll go through to the end of uh, verse 18. John 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, which means teacher and jesus said to her stop clinging to me for i have not yet ascended to the father but go to my brethren and say to them i ascend to my father and your father and my god and your god mary magdalene came announcing to the disciples i have seen the lord and that he had said these things to her may god add a Blessing to his word this morning. As we know, this is a special day on the calendar for Christians. And on Friday, we saw Jesus, the Lamb of God's own providing, the one who was sacrificed on the cross to pay the debt for our sin. This saviour of sinners died. He said it is finished. And after his death, he was laid in a tomb. It was a dark day for human history. But praise the Lord, there is a Sunday. Praise the Lord, the grave could not hold him. The Son of God, the one whom we can call now our blessed Saviour, he arose victorious over death. And hell and the grave. And today we celebrate that wonderful truth. We celebrate this glorious resurrection. Because his resurrection is, as we have sung and thought of this morning and and spoken and given testimony of, his resurrection is the believer's hope. He's our assurance of the promises of forgiveness and eternal life if he never arose, we have no right and have no claim and have no grounds to have a hope of that and that assurance. Christmas is wonderful, isn't it? But the Lord's birth and his life was not enough. Not enough. You see, Jesus was born to die and then to rise again according to the will of the Father, so that we, sinners, might be forgiven and receive salvation and eternal life. That's the deal, that's, how, that's the plan, that's how it's all worked. And this morning what I want to do is to spend a few moments recounting some of, of the details of that resurrection morning so that we might freshly appreciate the message of the empty tomb. But in order to understand these details, first I want you to examine with me the action around the tomb itself. Now I do know that we're only looking at one gospel. There's the four gospels give an account of of this happening and each writer from a different perspective. They don't contradict one another, but they just add a certain emphasis from each writer's perspective. And from our account in John we see that Three individuals came to the tomb that day, on that first Easter morning. And as they visited their tombs, this tomb, their hearts were in a quandary. Their hearts were filled with questions and sadness and fear and wonder at this incredulous possibility and mystery that surrounded the empty tomb. But on this first Easter morning, these three individuals, as they were forced to examine the tomb, that was not the only thing that they were forced to examine. They were forced to examine their own hearts. And so may we do the same this morning as we just walk through this little passage. The first heading I've got up there this morning is the tomb is examined. And the first person that comes on the scene in John's account is a loyal servant. We see this in verse 1. And verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. You see, Mary Magdalene was a loyal servant of the Lord, folks. We see something of this in the fact that she rose early. A lot of us here are not morning people, right? (laughs) The idea of rising early would be foreign to some of us. But not this lady. She rose early on this occasion. While it was still dark, the text tells us, to visit the tomb. The dark and early rising was not an obstacle to this lady. Her loyalty, no doubt, was due to the fact of what the Lord had done for her. And you know what he done for her? We're told of this in Luke chapter 8. He had healed her of seven demons. So here was a demon-possessed woman. She was an absolute bondage to these seven demons. No doubt she had sought help and she was an absolute wreck and a mess of a person. But the Lord had released her from them. Mary never got over what the Lord had done for her. Her life from that moment on was spent in serving her Saviour. She left home, which was in Magdala, which is in the top end of the Sea of Galilee, and with other women she followed the Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry with the other disciples and she served Him and she served them. She gave her time and her energy and her skill to the Lord. We also read of her that she was also at the foot of the cross. Read of this in the prior chapter and the other accounts of the Gospels where Jesus was crucified and, um, and she was just wanting to serve. And here she is again wanting to serve all the more by anointing Jesus' body with spices in his burial. You see, Mary was a devoted, loyal servant who sought every opportunity to minister to the Lord. Nothing was going to make her give up on him. What a lady, right? You know, folks, we can learn much from this. Like her, the Lord has done for us what you yourself cannot do what no minister or pastor can ever do, what no priest or pope can ever do. You see, because through his death and burial and resurrection, he has delivered us from the bondage of sin and its eternal wages of judgment. That's what the believer can claim. For those who believe him, that's what the Lord has done. So how can we as believers dare ever get over or be slack and indifferent to the miraculous intervention of God's grace in our lives. We cannot. So as we consider the joy of his resurrection, may we be challenged as believers in the Lord to be more like Mary, to be a loyal, devoted servant till the very end. May we never forget what Jesus did for us. But we also see someone else. We see a failed servant in verse 3. Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. You see, Mary was not on her own that day. We read that she went and told Peter and John, who immediately reacted, by the way. And we see these two guys running to the tomb and John was obviously a faster runner and he got there first. Peter was probably, might have been a bit like me, a bit heavy, you know. But as we focus on Peter, as the failed servant. We think of that because the last time we read of Peter and the last time we remember about Peter in this redemptive story was him going out of the courtyard as Jesus was being tried. And there he was going out of the courtyard weeping bitterly because why? Because he had just denied his Lord and Saviour with oaths and cursings. Matthew 26 gives us a detailed account of that. Now, here was this man, a man who was privileged to be a part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. And there was an inner circle, Peter, James and John. A man who was known for his boldness of speech and he was often the forthright spokesman of Jesus' band. Here he was running to examine the tomb. I guess we can only imagine the turmoil and heaviness on his heart that morning as his recent failure no doubt plagued him. These had to be difficult days for Peter. He loved the Lord. He absolutely did. After all, he was the one who, remember, you remember, who had confessed Jesus as Messiah, Matthew 16 and 16, and he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yet, in the hour of the Lord's greatest trial and need, he was a man who failed him. Folks, it is true that Peter failed the Lord. But in reality, he is also a man that we can admire. The reason being is that we too often fail the Lord, right? But what often happens is when we fail, just like Peter did or in a different way, what we often do is we push it out of our minds and carry on living with unrepentant hearts. We become indifferent to the conviction of our failure. And it's very quick back to business as usual for us. As we bury our head in the sand, so to speak, over the issue of our failure. But not Peter. Not Peter. The Lord and his recent death, his burial and, and his denial of the Lord was was right at the forefront of his mind. And you know what? He he wanted to put things right. And we know that he did put things right. Because he carried on being a great man of God and mightily used of the Lord. He wrote an epistle, first and second Peter. But he wanted to put things right. My dear people, when you fail the Lord, where do you run to? Where do you go to put things right, or do you? If you're an unbeliever and never trusted Jesus Christ as your Saviour, you know that you're a sinner, you know that you do things wrong, and you know that you're guilty of sin, where do you go to? Where do you flee to? To self or indifference or couldn't care less? Be like Peter, flee to the Lord to get things right because he's the only one that can reconcile us. He's the only one who can forgive us. No priest, as I said before, no minister, no, even yourself and feeling bad about things will never reconcile you, God. You've got to flee to Christ. Then we see. Thirdly, there was a loving servant. We see this in verse 4. It says, and the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Now, this other disciple was the writer of the gospel himself. It was John. And this man was a unique person in that he had a special love for for Jesus like no other did. The ten disciples, they loved the Lord. Judas is out of the picture. He never had a real love for the Lord, by the way. He went through the motions. So the ten other disciples, they loved the Lord, but John's love was special. Here was a man who always loved being close and up front and so physically near the Lord. Remember, in the upper room, What is John doing? It's recorded that he's laying on Jesus' breast. He was also there at the foot of the cross, remember? And Jesus seeing him singles him out and says, behold your mother. John's love for Jesus displayed a devotion that others didn't seem to find. Well, here was this man running to the tomb. And it was his devoted love for Christ that brought him to the tomb that day. He he couldn't bear the thought of of living and being without the Lord. Is that how our hearts resonate with Jesus Christ? I, I couldn't bear to live life without knowing the Lord and the Lord being in me. It would be frightfully terrible. I could not face tomorrow without the Lord be beside me and in me. How we all need this kind of undivided love for our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, John wrote later in his epistle, in chapter, first epistle, chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. That's what drove John's love. It was an absolute priority to him. And he would allow nothing whatsoever in life to dampen love's zeal, his love's zeal for the Lord because of the lord's love for him may our love for christ which is by the way plainly seen in the way we love one another may that be a priority that allows nothing to dampen its zeal so we've seen a little bit about the examination of the tomb now we're going to have a look at the empty tomb giving evidence You know, much time has been spent by theologians and skeptics and atheists and whoever else debating on this historical happening. We're not going to go there, not going to waste your time to tell you the truth. But as God's word is true, why? Because he is true, right? We believe by faith that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. But as we consider this reality, I want to look at the evidence in that empty tomb itself that is left on record for us. And the first evidence I want to look at was the fact that the stone was removed. You will see that. You will know that. You would have heard of that. This is not new to you. We see it in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. You see, in those days, graves were hewn out of rock creating a, a burial chamber that many of them were big enough to take whole families where one was laid and then another member of the family when they died they were laid etc but we know that Jesus was laid in a new tomb where no one, other, no, no one else had lain we have that back in the prior chapter in verse 41 a brand new tomb And in order to seal the tomb, a large stone was was cut so that it could be rolled across the mouth of the tomb. And it was usually rolled in a cut stone trench. When living in Israel, we visited tombs, a number of them, and even supposedly this tomb where Jesus had lain. And the cut stone was always very impressive because you could see the trench and I think they had kind of made put another stone there since. Um, But just to show what happened, there was the trench was certainly there because it was cut very deep. It was always very impressive, that stone, because it was massive and it would have taken a great amount of energy to shift. And so a stone was rolled across but it had been removed. But also we read in Matthew's account that as well as the stone, there was a Roman guard set. And we know what happened to that Roman guard, by the way. Two angels came and they fell as dead men. So here they were KO'd completely when the angels came and rolled the stone away. And so this whole sealing of the tomb is a, is a vivid reminder of, of the finality of death. That's what it was. You seal the tomb. It was a vivid reminder of that. But when Mary arrived that morning, the stone was rolled away. The Lord was no longer there. The point is this, folks. The stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled to let men in. The stone was removed so those original Lookers and disciples and mankind right down to this very day can see that Jesus has done as he said he would. He arose. And when you walk into that supposed tomb today, one cannot help be impressed with the fact that it's empty. The Lord is risen indeed. Second point of evidence is the grave clothes remained. We see this in verse 5 to 7. Let me read that. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter, therefore, also came following him, and he entered the tomb and beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. According to the prior chapter, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, you know, the same man that that, um, was up a tree and and trying to see Jesus, we believe, um, they'd spent considerable time and money on preparing the body of Jesus. For burial, with wrappings of linen that were bathed in aromatic spices, as was their custom. But here we read that the the wrappings, the linen wrappings, remained. The Lord wasn't in them. Everything about those remaining grave clothes, what they could, it was neat and tidy. It was orderly. This was not a work of grave robbers. If grave robbers wanted to come and rob the body, they would have ripped it apart and it would have been messy, it would have been untidy. Well, they wouldn't have bothered even taking the grave clothes off at all. Unlike Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? When the Lord raised him from the dead, the Lord said, Loose him from his grave clothes after his resurrection. You see, but when it comes to the Lord, his glorified, resurrected body. Just passed clean through these grave clothes. He passed through them. And also the face cloth. I don't know if you noted that. That was put on his face. It says that it was wrapped neatly in order all by itself. Evidently this face cloth placing was a significant gesture. It was customary in those times to use such a face cloth at meal times, and um, just like we would have napkins or a serviette, if whatever you want to call it, they had a face cloth at meal times. And you used that face cloth not only for wiping your face, but you used it for uh, to indicate certain actions. I remember being in Israel, I very soon came to to learn uh, the customary drink of the day was coffee or kahawa as they called it and you had these little cups with no handles you know the little round ones and I filled it up with black coffee and you drank your coffee and, uh, and you put your cup down and as soon as it hit the table, the pot came and the hostess came and she filled it up again. Oh, goodness, I didn't really want another one, but there you are. And so you drink it and you put it down. And then it's filled up again. And then I learnt that there was a custom. When you didn't want any more and were completely finished with coffee, you gave the coffee a cup of shake like that before you put it down. You didn't have to say anything. It was just that little shake of the coffee cup and you put it down and that meant, and that told, no more. He's finished. And same with a face cloth. Evidently it was customary that with a face cloth you indicated if you had either finished or not finished your meal. If it was finished and you're completely done, you just left it unfolded, just left it there, wherever. But if you wanted to even leave and come back and say, finish your pavlova, what you did is you neatly folded your face cloth, and you put it to one side. That was the gesture. You got the picture? Well, folks, Jesus did exactly that. He folded his face cloth and put it to one side. Yes, Jesus had completed the task of redemption for humanity, but you know what? There was still more on his plate. There was still more on his plate. plate, because he is going to complete that when He returns. He's not done yet when it comes to His redemptive plan. For when Christ comes, He comes to to take us people home, to usher us into glory and to rule and reign bodily and physically on this earth. And so on that day, you will either meet Him as your Saviour, or as a warning, you will meet him as your judge. You need to be ready, because the Lord is not done yet. He folded the face cloth. We also see that the angels rejoiced. We see this in 12 and 13, and it says here, And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, and one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary, obviously, she returned to the tomb at this stage and fearing the worst in that someone had stolen her Lord. And she was standing at the tomb, weeping uncontrollably as it seems. Because her love for the Lord was greater, evidently, than her faith in his promise to rise again. But at last, still weeping, This dear woman stoops in and looks into the tomb and all she sees is two angels standing where Jesus' body had lain. Then came those gentle but at the same time rebuking words. Woman, why are you weeping? Or in effect, woman, pull yourself together. It's time to rejoice, not to mourn. In other words, these angelic creatures, appearing as ordinary human beings, announce joyfully, the time of mourning is over, the sorrow of death has been forever shattered, because Jesus is alive. That's what the angels announced to her. The same jubilance is recorded in Luke chapter 24 and verse... 4-7 to seven, when these angels announce with a gentle rebuking question there and Luke records why do you seek the living one among the dead he is not here he is risen my dear people the Lord is risen and that should bring great joy to us right and it does we do not look to or, or remember some fictitious or mythical dead God like millions do around the world We worship the Lord who said of himself in Revelation 119 in his glorified state from heaven, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. When the angels rejoiced in the tomb, they gave evidence of his resurrection. So we have the empty tomb examined, the empty tomb gives evidence and then finally we have the empty tomb gives hope. Mary soon realized that there was no more need for sorrow and the sure hope began to develop as all that Jesus had promised he had fulfilled and she began to understand that. And so the empty tomb ought to grip us today, folks. It really should as it reveals to us the wondrous reason for hope to all those who have personal faith in Jesus Christ. And the first point is that Jesus is alive. That's the reason verse 14. And when she had said this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? The risen and glorified body of Christ was no match for the last view of her savior in his blood-stained agony on the cross, no match. But she did eventually recognize her Lord. You know when? When he spoke her name. Can you imagine the joy and elation and renewed hope she now had as she realized that the Lord was alive and well? All her woeful mourning and hopelessness was now swallowed up in the utterance of that one word when Jesus called her by her name. Dear people, what a glorious hope the believer has in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he too has called us by name. Do you know that? He has chosen his elect from before the foundation of the world. And he has written our names in the Lamb's book of life according to Ephesians 1 and Revelation 21. The risen Lord is God's stamp of absolute affirmation that our hope in him is absolute. It is a sure hope. Our names are recorded in heaven. The writer of the Hebrew tells us in 619, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and which one which enters within the veil. So we who believe and serve the risen Lord, the eternal God, the great I am, the one who calls himself and is the Alpha and Omega, he is alive, therefore our hope is not in vain. Amen. Because he lives, as we have sung this morning, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. What a hope we have. So Jesus now saves. We see this in verse 17. He now saves. And so this is, should give great hope to any who are unbelievers here this morning. He's still in the saving business. He's still in the redeeming business. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Jesus had a mission for Mary. And the mission was, go tell your disciples what I've told you. And what she had to tell them was of vital importance. Go tell them, I'm going back to my father and your father, my God and your God. Now, I wonder if you really note the personal pronouns there. My and your. In other words, through Jesus' death, the burial, the resurrection, redemption, salvation, forgiveness and adoption of repentant, believing sinner take place. And it still takes place today in this age of grace. This is when, through faith in Jesus Christ, we become one with Christ and we're adopted into God's family. We are his sons and daughters. Therefore, we become, those who believe, are brothers and sisters in Christ. It is through his completed work that Jesus has dealt with our sin, which separates us from God. Believing sinners are now accepted. We're no longer condemned, like Romans 8 1 tells us. And as the hymn writer clearly says, O sing of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and set me free. And finally, Jesus will return. Verse 17. Acts chapter one, if you want to read a, a record of his ascension back into heaven, records Jesus is going and uh, doing exactly what He said. And so what this does mean now for over 2,000 years, there has been no bodily physical presence of the Lord with his people on earth. But remember the promise he made in John 14 verses one to three. Some of us have been studying it on Thursday nights in our Bible study. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That's no might be. That's an absolute promise from God himself. People, the Easter morning so long ago will usher in the reality of his blessed return. Oh, what a day that will be for his people. Amen if you have been redeemed, if you've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, you will belong to that number that spends all eternity with our precious Lord. And so this morning, may the message of the empty tomb challenge us, may it convict us, may it change our hearts, so that from now on we can personally trust him and as believers live for his glory. He is risen. He is risen indeed. What we're going to do now is ask our musicians and singers to come because we're going to sing that well-known hymn Up from the Grave He Arose. Thank you Bench.